Well, tonight, head over to Lucemore Auditorium as another presentation of the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies graces the stage. Bush, legacy and lesson, what citizens need to know. Scholars gathering, including my next guest. Welcome to the morning show, delivering tonight's keynote address, Dr. J. Rufus Fears. Hello to you, Dr. Fears. Very pleased to be here. Pleasure that you are here. Can you introduce yourself, please? I am uh, the David Ross Boyd Professor at the University of Oklahoma, where I also hold the G.T. and Libby Blankenship Chair. And I'm delighted to be here in Grand Rapids. It's a beautiful city. I've never been here before. And I'm also delighted to be associated with Grand Valley State. It is a superb university. Nice. I'm uh, honored as well. And uh, you will um, have a fine crowd tonight. And I know uh, activities will continue tomorrow. We'll talk all about this. And uh, you're also, you also wear an author hat. I do. Mm-hmm. I'm particularly proud of a series of eight books on tape I've done with the teaching company. Uh, on Winston Churchill, on life lessons from the great books, and what we might talk about today, the wisdom of history. Mm-hmm. You, you bet on that, that's for sure. Have you always been interested in history? Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Ever since a, a young guy? Ever since I was <laughs> Good. little. Good. And, and uh, Oklahoma is your home, University of Oklahoma. University yes. of Oklahoma. Yes, spent some time in Tulsa. Oh, that yeah. is a very fine that city, a very too. very fine city. Uh, spent a semester there. I want to talk, obviously, on uh, your cliff notes for tonight, but let's start with current events and your historical uh, tutorial on this financial crisis, Dr. Fears. Can you, you set the scene on what you'd like to share? Well, I think it's a great challenge for us, and part of the President Bush's legacy will be whether he's remembered mainly like Herbert Hoover uh, and... Uh, We sometimes, though, have very short memories about history, whether it's the history of the Middle East or whether it's the financial history. You know, the beginnings of our country saw a financial crisis. Uh, The founders of our country very much believed that history was not much use if you studied trivial facts, but it was of the greatest use if you used history to make decisions in the present and look to the future. Uh, The generation of our founders declared its independence from the great superpower of its day, Britain, wanted on the field of battle, but it also went on to establish a constitution that we still use today. It gives us liberty under law. There's no other constitution like it in the world, but it grew out of a financial crisis just as serious as the one we have today. Uh, and it was how the founders responded to the crisis that determined their legacy. See, we had signed a treaty with Britain in 1783, giving us territory all the way to the Mississippi. However, the question was, could this new republic survive? In 1786, an enormous mortgage crisis broke out. It started in western Pennsylvania, farmers in western Virginia. They couldn't keep their farms. They had served their country. Now they had huge mortgages, but it spread all the way up to the banking houses of Philadelphia, of Boston, to the banking houses of London. There was a complete credit freeze. Mm -hmm. But in 1787, starting in May, 55 delegates presided over by George Washington came to Philadelphia in what we call Independence Hall, and within one summer, they had crafted and then sent out to the American people the Constitution. Now, is our Congress going to be able to create such an enduring legacy in one summer? But that wasn't just it. The American people ratified that Constitution, which had as one of its central points that Congress has the power to regulate commerce, to establish a sound financial basis to the country. 
They write, however, the people reg- uh, ratified it with the understanding, not a written understanding, but the promise that the first Congress to meet under it would give them a Bill of Rights. Now, would you give up your le- freedom on the promise of Congress? Well, they did. Um, okay, they did. Congress then kept that promise and in its first term created our Bill of Rights, which was then ratified. Two, same term, established the Ordinance for Settling the Northwest Territory, like the great state of Michigan. But then, same term, solved this financial crisis. George Washington found the right man, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton came up with a plan for a bailout. That's exactly what it was. A bailout to put an end to this frozen credit market. The question was national indebtedness. We had a national debt of $72 million. Now, in terms of inflation and the ability of a nation then to raise money, it's about like our deficit today. Which is like $8.7 trillion, yes. isn't it? Yes, yeah. it's very similar. First step was, are we going to pay off our foreign creditors, France, France and Holland, who had bankrolled the revolution? And Congress said, that's a debt of honor. We're paying it off in gold. All right. But then what about all the debts we've assumed uh, in terms of ordinary merchants we bought goods from? That's the government. And there people said, well, you know, most of those, uh, the first holders of those loans have sold them off to speculators. And those speculators bought them at only one cent for $100. We can't reward that kind of speculation. Well... Hamilton and Congress said, yes, we must. We'll pay them off at full value to establish that the bonds of the United States are valid. Then there was a bigger question, state debts. All these states had run up huge debts. Some, like Virginia, had paid theirs off. Others, like Massachusetts, had not. And a congressman from Virginia said, we're not paying off anybody else's debts. And once again, Congress finally sat down and with real political give and take, paid off those debts at face value. So the currency of this country was established, a national bank was established to facilitate commercial transaction, and as a result, in 1789, when all this had been done in one term, remember, hold Congress to that, one term, the French Revolution broke out. European investors had nowhere to put their money with the chaos in France, so they poured it into this country, laying the foundation for our commercial success. Now, that's what a Congress can achieve. They were politicians. Uh, one of the big questions was funding these state debts, and uh, the delegates from Virginia said, we will never vote against it, never vote for it, never. And so Alexander Hamilton met with Thomas Jefferson. Uh, George Washington said, boys, I want this settled, and I want it settled today. So for 30 minutes, they walked up and down in front of Washington's residence, and Jefferson said, I'll tell you what, I'll get the delegates from Virginia to vote for the funding of the debt if the federal capital is located on the Potomac. Oh, uh, making some deals. And making deals. Hamilton went back, and the Philadelphia delegates finally agreed that, all right, they'd do it, but the capital had to stay in Philadelphia for at least 10 years. And so it was done. Do we... S- do we say that history repeats itself? Well, I just want to ask you a question. Uh, I didn't take a lot of history. Well, that's Don't okay. That's all right. But I'm just going to ask you. I can tell you all the bones in your body. All okay. right. Are our congressmen today any less intelligent than those? No. Are they any less well-educated? No. Do they have uh, poor communications? No. These delegates in 1789 uh, can't text message. So the difference is they were true patriots. They were willing to put all of their petty concerns aside to solve this crisis. And that is what we must demand of this upcoming 
Congress. Whenever everyone tells me that, oh, well, President Obama must do this, President Obama in the Constitution has very little power. It's Congress that has to do it. And that is where we must make the first bold challenge. How does this happen? How does this happen? Yes. It happens from having a president like a Franklin Roosevelt or George Washington. Roosevelt faced an even greater challenge than we do today, who presents to Congress sound proposals and then gets Congress to pass them. If you want a second uh, parallel to today, it was 1932. The Great Crash of 29 came on as a result of enormous amounts of credit, far too many people being in the stock market who never should have been in it, people buying homes on mortgage, people buying cars on the installment plan, and it just all collapsed. And then we elected Franklin Roosevelt. Now, he had had very little experience, had the terrible disease of polio, which he overcame by sheer will, uh, but he had been a mediocre governor of New York. Here he found himself with this great challenge. And if President Obama does the same, he will come to his inauguration the way Roosevelt did and make a strong, stirring speech laying out precisely why this has happened and how it is going to be fixed. And that is what Roosevelt did. He laid down, one, that this was a result of people in high position in business betraying their trust. They are the money changers, he said, and we must drive them from our temples. But this is not just a question of talk. It's of action. We are going to act now. And our first priority is America, not the global economy, but America, he said. And it has put Americans back to work. Then he went on with his plan. As in the World War, we will enlist Americans into a great army of workers. Still a day in Michigan, you can walk down town streets with a WPA arm from that workforce, the CCC, see swimming pools and parks built by them, great dams and bridges. We are going to unfreeze our credit system, he said. When he was inaugurated, banks in all 48 of the states, all the banks were shut. Not in honor of Inauguration Day, but they weren't functioning. Within 12 days, the federal regulators had gone in. They had reopened the banks that were solvent, and Roosevelt could tell the nation, your money is safer in the bank than under your mattress. He gave people hope. But he also issued a challenge to Congress. He said, I expect proposals from you immediately. I'm going to give you proposals immediately. But if you do not act on my proposals and you do not send me adequate proposals, I will ask for executive powers as broad and sweeping as if we were invaded by a foreign foe. Do you anticipate this request from our president-elect? I think President-elect Obama must go in with a very strong inaugural speech. He must begin to bombard Congress immediately with well-conceived proposals to put an end to this immediate crisis and to ensure that it does not happen again for the foreseeable future. And he must instill the American people with hope. Getting a lesson myself. I hope you are as well. Dr. J. Rufus Fears is with us this morning, and we'll be speaking tonight on behalf of the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies. The title, Bush, Legacy and Lessons, What Citizens Need to Know. Tonight, 7 o'clock, head over to Lucemore Auditorium, allpresidents.org for your, your information. Of course, seating is limited, so do RSVP. And then tomorrow, uh, a variety of panelists and, and further addressing Bush, Legacy and Lessons, what do citizens need to know, Dr. Fears? 
What do citizens need to know? Do they need to know that this financial crisis that we say we are in um, uh, will be a black mark on Bush's legacy? Yes, it will be. Uh, and as I said uh, earlier on, the question will be, will he be remembered mainly like uh, Herbert Hoover as the president who wrecked the economy? Uh, this uh, financial crisis is, again, a result of a refusal to learn from history. Uh, I have been, I'll be very open with you, a great admirer of President Bush. I've been a strong supporter of his. But when we went into Iraq, we ignored the lessons of history about the Middle East, how many people have tried to come and bring democratic values and failed, and we have ignored the lessons of economic history, that a nation like an individual cannot be in enormous debt over the long term. And this financial crisis was not only foreseeable, it was preventable by strong government action and regulation. Uh, A president... A great statesman must have a moral compass. We don't have moral compasses today. We have antennae. We put them out to hear what people want us to say. But President Bush does have strong principles, but he and the Republicans who profess those same principles of fiscal responsibility did not follow them, and they eroded their moral authority with the American people. How do you spend... um President Bush, see President Bush spending his his days out of the White House. Will he write a book? I'm sure he will write a book. And uh, another way you build a legacy is um, you you meet defeat. And the question is, how do you respond to that defeat? Uh, There are some people who would say that President Carter has been a much greater ex-president than he was a president. He left office with very low approvals, you must remember. We were in, uh, had a disastrous economy. Our hostages were held in Iran. Our national morale was so low, we got excited about beating the Russians in ice hockey. And yet he has gone on to build a name for himself as attempting to bring peace to many parts of the world, uh, helping people here in this country. And I hope President Bush will take up that same challenge to say, I am still going to leave the world a better place just the way I intended as president. I certainly want to close with, with what we hear from you tonight. But talk to me a bit about your your knowledge of, of Gerald R. Ford, Jr., obviously a home here in Grand Rapids. I think he is a very great president. I think he's a very great man. I think he is an example like Harry Truman of a man who grew in the office. Ah, uh, He hadn't expected to be president any more than Harry Truman had expected to be president. Uh, Gerald Ford was faced, just like Harry Truman, with great, great issues. He restored our nation's morale. He was president with honor and dignity, restoring that to the office. He made hard decisions like the pardoning of President Nixon, which he knew were in the best interest of this country. And... uh, One of the mistakes our country made was to turn him out of office. Uh, He would have been a very superb president from that period of 1976 to 1980. Tell me about the book you're currently writing, Dangerous Delusions, Why We Ignore the Lessons of History at Our Risk. Well, this this began with a consideration of the um, situation we find ourselves in in the Middle East. And I believe that President Bush was right to go into Iraq. I believe he was right to remove the evil regime of Saddam Hussein and the Taliban. But I also believe that if you are going to go to war, 
then the American people must understand that they are at war. And one of our dangerous delusions has been since Korea and Vietnam to think you can fight a war in a foreign place and let everything else go on at home just the same. It cannot be so. And after 9-11, President Bush could have mobilized in a psychological sense the American people to understand that this was going to be a difficult and long task, but explain to them, one, why it must be done, and two, the strategy by which we are going to win. So the dangerous delusion began with the idea about the Middle East and how it has become a quagmire, but it is now dealing also in my book a great deal with this financial crisis. Could a delusion have been when he claimed an early victory? No, that was not a delusion. Uh, He said mission accomplished, and we had removed Saddam Hussein. It was just that simple. No, the press, excuse me, they just blew that out of all proportion and even twisted it. But it was a dangerous delusion to think that just removing Saddam Hussein would suddenly create democracy not only in Iraq but throughout the Middle East. We needed a very deep understanding of the values of the Middle East, an understanding that freedom is not necessarily a universal value, that setting up a democracy does not mean it is going to work. So the delusion was in thinking we could solve the problem of the Middle East in very short term. Tonight, again, you, the keynote, Bush, Legacy and Lessons, What Citizens Need to Know. What will we hear from you, Dr. Fears? I want to take the example of a great statesman, what makes a great statesman, how do we distinguish what a statesman, a true statesman, from a mere politician, and then hold several of our presidents up to that standard. You also do some publishing, I see. I've written more than 100 articles and other writings on ancient history. Yes. Well, ancient history, history of Greece and Rome, the founders of our country believed was the most useful for uh, learning in the present. All right. Well, uh, enjoy your time in, in West Michigan. It is a, you know, our second largest city in Michigan and, and coming kind of coming Full circle, Dr. Fears, the financial crisis. You know we're feeling that right here in Michigan. Yes, I do. So, all right. We'll see you tonight, Dr. J. Rufus Fears, out of University of Oklahoma, where you profess. Uh, What kind of students do you teach? Wonderful students. I understand. uh, You're described as a very compelling and engaging teaching style. I can see that. Well, I appreciate you saying that. One-on-one, I'm sure, with with many. Dr. Fierce, thanks. We'll see you tonight on behalf of the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies. Thanks so much for being here. And, of course, thanks to the team at the Howenstein Center. Allpresidents.org is where you'll find out all the information. RSVP for the 7 o'clock event tonight, that's for sure. You'll get a, a guaranteed good seat.